following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. be back. Had a fabulous time in uh, South Texas, out in the field with a buddy, trying to figure out what we could do to expand our freezers and load it up with some food for the for the summer. Uh, he was successful, I was not, uh, but that's okay. Uh, on, on his lease, I'm just the guest. And when you're the guest on the lease, you can't shoot anything too small and you can't shoot anything too big. It's just got to be right there in the middle sweet spot. So on the hoof, I have to be able to age a deer that's three and a half years or older. So if you're looking at a buck and try to decide, well, is this thing two and a half years old or three and a half years old? If there's any doubt, you've got to let it go. So I, I did a lot of that in South Texas, and uh, that was fine. It was just great to get out. Great to be back home. Well, once there were two brothers, and the two brothers, one was bright and one was not so bright. And the two brothers were out in a department store having a good time, and the bright brother found his not-so-bright brother standing in front of a display, just staring and mesmerized at the, the new, new product that was online. And he asked his not-so-bright brother, hey, what you looking at? And the not-so-bright brother says, I don't know. And so the bright brother walks up and says, oh, those are thermoses. That's a, that, that's a thermos. Really? And he says, man, they're really, they're really bright and shiny. What is a thermos? And his bright brother says, well, a uh, Thermos, that's really simple. They keep hot things hot and cold things cold. And the not-so-bright brother says, wow, that's really cool. They look great. And boy, if they do that, I want one. So he bought one and went to work the next day. And he's setting out his lunch on the table. And he put the thermos out. And one of his coworkers walked up and says, wow, you got a new thermos. And the not-so-bright brother says, yeah, they keep hot things hot and cold things cold. And this is his uh, co-worker says, so what do you got in there? He says, a hot cup of coffee and two popsicles. <laughs> well, you let that sink in for a minute. And sometimes I'm afraid that's what we do with the Bible. <laughs> when God gives us information, we get things kind of mixed up, or we really don't apply the lessons we've learned to the new application at hand. And I'm in uh, theological education, and I'm very convinced that the best kind of change that occurs is when people take information and lessons and they apply it to their life to the point where life is changed. Not just that they know more stuff, but their life is changed because of the information that they receive. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today where the disciples who are supposed to be learning from Jesus Christ are learning information and trying to select the kind of information that they really want to apply to their life. And sometimes they overlook the proper application. Sometimes in their life, when biases set themselves and ingrain themselves deeply in a person's value system, they don't really want to change. And even though information is given to them and they've been given a lesson whereby they can actually focus and function better, they don't always demonstrate or perform up to the level where they should. But one of the things about our life, when we all have biases, is uh, we'll see it here in the life of the disciples that the heart of God is much bigger than that. And we have to be able to go beyond our own choices that we've grown up with, in many ways become the natural fallback or default on how we live our life, and realize that God wants us to do some things differently because we are now followers of Him 
and his values are the ones that we want to embrace. Well, our study today is uh, bringing us to the book of Mark in chapter 8, and the context of Mark chapter 8 gives us a couple weeks to look back on our lesson when we saw Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most popular miracles of the Bible. If you were to take a a poll on uh, people just walking down the street, even non-Christians, if they were to ask, well, can you name any of the the miracles of the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000 oftentimes is on that list. So people know about it, but people really don't know it. And as we studied it a couple of weeks ago, here are some of the highlights that we remembered from this particular event in Great Miracle. Jesus Christ is in this mode or in this historical episode where he's trying to teach his disciples. And he's trying to teach his disciples about faith. This is not just a general historical moment in the life of Christ when he's doing things haphazard. Christ is actually focusing his attention on his 12 and trying to demonstrate to them what real faith is and allowing them to experience it, see it, and embrace it as a way in which they're going to live their lives. So Christ performed these miracles not just to wow them, but to teach them that they too have this connection with the power of the Almighty in heaven so that they could be a participant in this whole process if they not only adopt the trust and dependence upon God, but also the values that God demonstrates these interventions with. His desire for the 12 was to learn. So this learning process, according to the Hebrew custom, was how a person not just knew stuff, that's the Greek style, but the Hebrew style was to perform so they would actually live their lives this way. Education is where my life is, and the Hebrew Greek methods are very, very different. The Greeks would be uh, uh, centered around a teacher who would talk and talk and talk, and his disciples or students would follow him, sit down, walk with him, wherever he went, they would follow their teacher and listen to what he had to say. That process of regurgitating or entering into a dialogue with the teacher about what the teacher was saying, that was the Greek method. And that many times would probably be reflective of how we have learned here in the United States. The Hebrew method is very different, very agrarian culture. The dad realized his son was of age. He'd bring him out to the field, show him how he hooked up the harness between the farm implements and the animals. He'd let his son do it on the other side. He would show him how to plow by plowing and then letting his son try it. He'd finish off by looking back and seeing how straight the the furrows were, and he'd let his son plow for a while, and then let him look back and see how straight his furrow was. A lot of it was doing. A lot of it was replicating. A lot of it was reproducing on the basis of what I've been taught, now I will do and demonstrate. That's the Hebrew method. Jesus Christ used that so much in the process of teaching his disciples. They were very busy and very hungry through this whole process of ministry. For days and days, Jesus Christ was out with his disciples, engaging in the lives of people. And because of that busyness with people, Jesus recognized that his disciples needed a break. So Jesus Christ intentionally was going to take his disciples on a retreat. And that meant away from people so that he could allow his disciples to get refreshed. But when they went away to the retreat, the people who loved Jesus were so fascinated with him, followed him, found out where he went, and throngs, masses, thousands followed Jesus where he was. So even though this was intended to be a retreat, Jesus Christ was overwhelmed by the people who came because they didn't want to retreat 
from him. They still wanted Jesus Christ to minister to them. And while the disciples, like many of us, would have the attitude, well, I'm taking a break from people, and now all the people are here at my break, I'm a little bit annoyed. I'm a little bit taken back, a little bit frustrated. But Jesus Christ responded differently. And when we studied this lesson, Jesus Christ demonstrated this incredible compassion, which was his reaction to people in need, even though he was personally exhausted. Ministry plus people equals problems. That is the Dallas Theological Seminary motto. Ministry would be really fun if it weren't for people. That's our motto. And uh, that's, that's his tongue-in-cheek. Don't quote me. I'll deny it if you ever say it. But people, that's really the issue. That's where ministry takes place. Some of the solutions here with regard to the people who were very hungry was, how in the world can you feed all these people with what little resources we have? When our dependence is upon what is limited, faith has a hard time emerging. When our faith is based upon what is limited, faith has a hard time emerging. When our dependence upon what is limited. So Jesus Christ asked them, well, what do you have? And all I could see was from the standpoint of what is natural with regard to a solution to the problem at hand. So when a problem arises and you see a challenge before you, especially when it deals with people, if our first reaction is, what do I have? What can I depend upon? What am I used to? How do I feed these people? How do I take care of them? From the standpoint of material provision, if that's the extent of how we can express ourselves as we represent the Almighty God, then faith has a hard time emerging. Well, we have that great miracle, and we realize that after that miracle, none of the disciples ever said, wow, look at what Jesus did. Man, this is amazing. Jesus Christ has power even over the multiplication of limited food. None of the disciples did that. None of the 12 did that even though they picked up all the basketfuls of the leftovers. So Jesus Christ took his disciples immediately. The first thing Jesus Christ did when he realized his disciples were not impressed, were not expressing this wonder, were not overwhelmed with the expression of God's presence and power. He took them away from the people, sent the people off, took them into a boat, says, go across the lake, I'll catch up with you somewhere along the line. Christ saw his disciples in the lake struggling with the storm, he realized that their faith was what was missing because all they could see was the problems. All they can see were the limitations of human ability. Just like in the feeding of the 5,000, now also in their capacity in the area that they were most comfortable. They made their living on the lake, at least many of them did. And now that they were in a storm and they couldn't get across, they were frustrated. So Jesus Christ says, well, I'll show them again what I showed them before. And that is the power of God is not limited because of the human problems we face. So Christ walked out on the water. He was going to go right by them. He was hoping that maybe, this is our speculation, maybe just seeing him would give them the faith to to look beyond their own human limitations. But when they saw Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. I mean, these are the disciples. Christ was in their presence. He saw them. They saw him, and they thought he was a ghost. Now, here we all here, followers of Jesus Christ, claim to be members of the church, followers of of our Lord and Savior. When Christ makes his presence known, would we ever recognize him? Or would we say, whoa, what's that? Oh, that's weird. Oh, that's strange. Or is our intimacy with Jesus Christ such that if he manifests himself in some way, 
provision, through the life of another person personified, through a truth, through a reminder of a book, would we recognize him? So Christ has to go into the boat to convince them that he is who they thought he was, and he's not just a figment of their imagination. Now we have another really interesting moment here in now Mark chapter 8, which is after the feeding of the 5,000. And this is the curiosity, this is the feeding of the 4,000, and there are a lot of curiosities that we should have with regard to this particular episode. First of all is why in the world would we ever want to repeat this miracle? And I run into seminary students all the time. Have you ever preached on the feeding of the 4,000? I said, no. I preached on the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, if I'm going to preach on one of the feedings, might as well preach on the one where he fed more. So they skipped the feeding of the 4,000. I says, well, why do you think God put it there in his scripture? I don't know. It's, it's just a kind of a repeat, I guess. And I, I'm amazed at the vague recollection of the feeding of the 4,000. But for, for instance, all of us who've trained with weights, when you get there and your trainer's there, or your buddy's there, and you, you lift weights and, you, and you're, you're pumping 125 pounds, and boy, it comes pretty easily, or at least, at least you're able to do it. So what, what does your buddy say? Well, you did 125 pounds really easily. Let's take off a quarter and let's just do 100 pounds. And they never do that. Man, let's get stronger. Get 125, let's put on a dime. Let's do 135 and see how far we can go today. They always train by making it tougher. They always train by making it tougher. Jesus Christ is in this historical episode where he's training his disciples to live by faith. He already taught them about feeding the 5,000. Why would in the world would Jesus Christ lessen the challenge? Oh, let's, let's learn to live by faith now by figuring out how to feed 4,000. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, if a curiosity starts to develop here, that's outstanding. Hold on to your seats while we watch what Jesus Christ is trying to do. Why do it easier the second time? The similarities of this particular episode compared to the feeding of 5,000. Amazing, it's a remote place. People came for spiritual reasons, that's very sure. The first time I ran across this idea, I was just doing an exposition through one of the Gospels, and I I got to the feeding of the 4,000. I thought, oh good, I can catch up. Then I started to pay attention to what the Scriptures were revealing, and my curiosity turned into a pencil, and I started making notations back and forth, comparisons and contrasts. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus Christ withdrew to to a place that was quiet and by itself. He tried to get away from the people. The feeding of the 4,000, very similar, along the Sea of Galilee on the other side. Crowds followed in both occasions. And in both situations, Jesus Christ manifested remarkable compassion. Compassion was a difference by Jesus toward the demanding crowds in contrast to the rather distant and uncaring disciples. Jesus Christ heals the sick in both situations, but here's an oddity. Jesus Christ was healing this crowd for a day in the feeding of the 5,000, but in the feeding of the 4,000, it was three days. After the feeding of the 5,000, after one day, the disciples came to Jesus Christ and said, look, Jesus, you got to take a break here. The people are hungry. Can't you hear their stomachs growling? Now, they have this historical experience in their past. But with the feeding of the 4,000, they ignore their lesson 
They ignore what they've been taught and they just keep on waiting, not saying a thing for three days. Finally, Jesus is the one who has to bring up the issue. Hey, it's been three days that I've been with these people. Why don't you guys give them something to eat? Now, who in the world would say, boy, these must be all A students? I mean, with the lesson that they had with the feeding of the 5,000, wouldn't you think that at least several of them would say, hey, Jesus, it's been a half day now that you've been teaching. Hey, I know what's coming. Let's feed these guys. Wouldn't you think that that would be the thing that we would, we would all be kind of fighting each other for the opportunity to take the initiative to go to Jesus and say, hey, I'm the one who recognizes first Jesus. Know that I learned the lesson of the 5,000. Now with a lesser group of 4,000, I'm going to be very observant and discerning. But no one did. All 12 of them kept their mouths shut for three days. Absolutely stunning. Jesus Christ is the one who talks about the food and saying, well, let's feed them with what resources we have, what's, what's available. And it's amazing here that in the first time of feeding 5,000, they only had five loaves and two fish. The second time they had the same kind of menu, but a little different quantity. They had seven loaves and a few fish, which means at least three or more. More people, fewer resources the first time. Fewer people, greater resources the second time. This is starting to stack up as a really odd episode. They broke the food in both situations. Jesus Christ gave thanks for it. And amazingly enough, in the first lesson, they had more leftovers than they did the second time around. Go take inventory. Who knew what the inventory was? In the first episode of the Feeding of the 5,000, the one who says, where are we going to get enough food for feeding all these people? He was named. That was Philip. Jesus already knew what he would do. This was a test. It's identified as a test because an expression of faith gives the disciples an opportunity to participate in a solution way beyond the possibilities of human understanding. They were introduced to it, the feeding of the 5,000. Why in the world didn't they pick up on the lesson the second time around? If the best kind of training, if the best kind of education changes lives, why in the world didn't the 12 express any kind of faith the second time around? Andrew said the first time in the feeding of 5,000, hey, here's a little boy with uh, some food, but what's that among so many? So Andrew had an expression of faith the first time around, but probably maybe his brother Peter looking at him and glaring, what in the world are you bringing up such a stupid solution for in the first place? Can you imagine Andrew? Hey, Jesus, here's a boy. He's got five loaves and two fish. Peter's glaring at him. Well, but, you know, what's that among so many? I could just see that happening. But the second time around, why wouldn't Andrew say, I'm going to ignore my brother because he's the one who stifled my faith the first time. I'm going to say, hey, we've got, we've got even more resources this time, Jesus. We've got seven loaves rather than five and at least three fish or more instead of the two we had the last time. Ha-ha, Peter, I said it before you did. It's none of that. Well, there's some unique differences with the feeding of the 4,000. Three days of hunger instead of one. The number of people who had to be fed was less. The challenge was easier numerically. They had the experience of their past miracle as they saw it and experienced it by what Jesus did. But the second time, Jesus had to do the initiative. The disciples were quiet for three days and Christ had had enough. He then spoke up with initiative. These people are hungry. Give them something to eat. 
People might say that I'm being nitpicky, but they actually did have more resources the second time around. But for some reason, the leftovers were less, as if the reward just wasn't there. So I keep on asking myself the question, why in the world were there unique differences between these two? When they should have actually had the feeding of the 12,000, and the resources be a lot less, like there's only one loaf here and a half of fish. And the people, would, the disciples, if they had learned the lesson, would say, hey, it's not a matter of the resources, nor the matter of the challenge. It's a matter of focusing our dependence upon Jesus, that he could provide no matter what the situation. It's not a matter of human numbers in this world. But why in the world is this odd comparison so weird? The more I looked in the scripture, I can only find one difference between the two that maybe will give us a clue to the answer. And that simply was the location. The feeding of the 5,000 was in Bethsaida. That's found in Luke chapter 9, verse 10. And Bethsaida is right there on the Sea of Galilee, and it's on the western side. The second part here in the feeding of the 4,000 found in Mark chapter 7 was in Decapolis. That's also along, not far from the Sea of Galilee, but on the east side. The geographical location of these two events starts to maybe ring in your spirit, then maybe we have a clue to the answer. The disciples, all 12 of them, were Jewish. And they were probably thrilled to watch Jesus Christ perform a miracle in the area of Bethsaida to feed 5,000 Jews and their families. But the second time of the feeding of the 4,000 was in Decapolis, Gentile territory. And so when Jesus Christ was teaching 4,000 men plus families, the crowd was probably much larger than that, but they were Gentiles. The Jewish disciples were not all that interested in seeing any expression of faith when Almighty God could perform a miracle to benefit Gentile dogs. Simple conclusion. It was a racial issue. Faith expressed by those who follow Jesus, must recognize that there's only one God for all people. And if the disciples were not willing to watch God bless the Gentile people, they had a lot to learn with regard to the expression of their faith. Some principles from this very, very important lesson, cares about resolving issues. Can we ever limit God with the biases that we have? Eternal values are without limitations that we impose because we are human. Always seek freedom from an un, from a non from a conflicted heart is going to be leading us to trouble. I, I've never thought of myself as being uh, the initiator of personal biases with regard to favoritism until one day when uh, I was invited to speak to a group of men out in a rural part of Oregon. And I drove and I drove and I drove for four and a half hours and finally found this little oasis in the middle of the High Plains Desert of Oregon and drove in and uh, was greeted by the folks who invited me and I had a, had a splendid time. There were probably about 300 men who were there and all the men were white. And I was the only one not white and I knew they were all white because they all look alike. And I just had the greatest time opening up the Word of God and I just taught them and I taught them and I taught them and I taught them and we just had a blast except for one guy. And I still remember he was a big, burly guy with a huge beard, and he was about a head and shoulder taller than everybody else. 
And he sat over here to my right in the front row every time we had a session. And he always sat there with his arms crossed. And when he did that, he always wore his short sleeve shirt. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, his biceps are bigger than my thighs. And he's always scowling at me. So I did what any, when it, any other good public speaker is taught to do. You always look for the friendly people. And you always skip the negative, critical, scowling type. So I'd be doing my deal, and I'd be going across, and I'd look up and around over here, <laughs> up and around over here. And every, every session was like that, and, and the guys were very responsive. They were great. We had great talks afterwards. And when the final session was done, I was talking to a bunch of guys, and this huge dark cloud came over. A shadow just covered me. And I knew over to my right who was standing there waiting to talk. So I tried, I, wait, 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 let's talk some more, let's talk some more. And I talked to every single human being that was there until they were all gone, and the shadow was still there. So I finally turned, and I looked up at the guy, he says, hi. And he says, I've got some things to say. And I said, okay. I mean, I wasn't going to say no. Hey, I don't want to hear you, man, I got I to gotta blow here, and I got to get out of town. So I said, sure, what do you got to say? He says, I was in Nam for three tours of duty. The United States Army trained me to kill people, and I was really good at it. On my final tour, they sent us out on a search-and-destroy mission. We were ambushed. Everything was exploding. Even my buddies around me were exploding. Direct hits with RPGs. I got out with a couple of my buddies. We were all separated, and we were supposed to rendezvous on a small trail at the edge of the forest next to this small village. I was the first one who was there. Out from that village came an old man. I don't know what side he was on, but he's riding his bike right down that trail. He's going to go right by me. When he saw me, he started yelling. He started cursing. In a language that I don't know, but I know those words. And when he got up close to me, he tried to spit at me. He missed, but he tried to spit at me. And he kept cursing. He went riding down that trail, and I just lost it. And I yelled at him and said, I came all the way across the world, or halfway around the world, to save you and your people, to give you freedom, to watch my buddies get blown apart. Why you? And he said those words that were blankly blank that you could never repeat. And they were racially charged, almost every single one of those words. He says, my, my weapon raised itself to my shoulder and my safety went off and I emptied the clip in the back of that guy's head. And quite frankly, Fong, I don't think God could ever forgive me for doing that. For one split moment in my life as a minister called by Jesus Christ for his gospel to all people, I thought to myself, here in the middle of rural Oregon, when I might be the only Asian guy in, within 20, 30 miles, you're coming to me to confess that, and you want me to give you a word of forgiveness from Almighty God that you are absolved from that, you turn your life to Jesus Christ? And I thought, just for a split second, I hope you suffer with an agony that you can never find a solution for just because of that bias that you had to waste a guy just because he was Asian. That split second in my life in ministry 
is still very vivid in my mind. But I am so glad that the Spirit of God is stronger and that I wouldn't be guilty of this particular bias that these disciples struggled with in the feeding of the 4,000 compared to the 5,000. I put my hand on his shoulder, at least I tried. I couldn't get up that high. I just put it on his bicep that I'd been staring at all weekend. I said, the love of Jesus Christ is so powerful that we can remember that grace is always greater than sin. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he can forgive you of even that episode in your life. Have you ever seen a giant with a full beard begin to cry and weep without control? It was like an earthquake in the middle of rural Oregon. And where I almost stole a moment because of selfish bias myself, it became an avenue where the grace of God ministered to his spirit. Have maybe the first Asian guy he'd seen since he'd been back from Nam out there in rural Oregon give him the truth about the gospel of Christ. Now, gentlemen, every one of us, we think of ourselves as pretty high on the level of not having any biases. But almost every one of us has, has had it, maybe still deals with it. But God says in his word, human biases and prejudices get in the way of the expression of faith of what Almighty God can do for the lives of other people. And you're going to be dealing with people this week and in the weeks to come and for the rest of your life, maybe at the workplace, all have biases. They might have biases against someone because they choose a certain lifestyle that we used to call sin. They'll have biases against people because they look different or they talk different. Or they're only in a certain class with regard to the employees in the company that you work for. But every human being that breathes and every human being whose heart beats, God has compassion for them when they have desperate needs for eternity. And now we get to be Jesus personified in their life to show them the love and the acceptance and this amazing gift called grace. And God has given us that privilege to express faith in him with our dependence for the benefit of those people that we run across. Have a great time in your table talk, guys. Fabulous lesson. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.